This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Joe. Hi, hello. Y'all, <laughs> y'all, my guest today is a pop culture, internet culture, just expert, and I cannot wait to get into this interview. But before we begin, just remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds, and send in your suggestions for future episodes at ProfessionalBookNerds at Overdrive.com. Without any further ado, here's Evan Ross Katz. My guest today is a writer, fashion columnist, podcast host, and Sarah Michelle Geller historian. You can hear him on the Shut Up Evan and Drop Your Buffs podcasts, read his bi-weekly paper mag column, Wear Me Out, and of course, you can dive into what brought us together today, his new book, Into Every Generation, A Slayer is Born, How Buffy Staked Our Hearts, which came out on March 15th from Hachette Books. It's Evan Ross Katz. Evan, hello. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. I'm actually coming to you live from the Hellmouth in Cleveland, Ohio. Mm, yes, the, the <laughs> East Coast Hellmouth, if you will. Exactly. Not quite as glamorous as New York, uh, but, you know, we've at least got our own demonic activity here. Yeah, that's important. It, it, it distinguishes you. So to get us started, can you tell us a little bit about Into Every Generation, A Slayer is Born? Okay, so the book is part oral history, part critical analysis, part fan notes, and it's about the show Buffy the Vampire Slayer that I and I think many others very much love, whether it be from our childhoods, which is the case for me, or for many people, they discovered it in adulthood. Many people found it during the pandemic. And I think it's a show that for many reasons really sticks with people and is really formative for a lot of folks. And so this book explores the show itself and then dives into why we 25 years later, because it is the 25th anniversary of the show, why we are still talking about this show and why the way we feel about it is for many of us so strong and why, why we still feel that strongly about the show, despite it, you know, being almost, you know, 25 years old in some instances, 20 years old, some episodes, but we're still talking about it. We're still thinking about it. So we get into the why. I love that. Uh, I absolutely love that. I have definitely seen Buffy throughout the years. Um, I, well, I'm not 30 yet, but uh, it was airing at the at the same time for me. It was a childhood show, but I got really into Charmed, as all of my listeners are probably tired of hearing me say. Uh, so I was just kind of running parallel. But when you said so many of us still love, I called out to my coworker, Christina, and I said, OK, give me the hottest rundown you can of all seven seasons. And if we didn't spend an hour and she gave me an entire birth of knowledge just so I could even be worthy of talking to you about Buffy. <laughs> well, I hope you'll go and deep dive the show now. I will say in the uh, 
charmed Buffy stack up, which is a comparison often made. I do find Buffy to be the superior show, but I do love charmed. That's fair. This is the content I need. I can only rewatch the same three shows so many times. I guess I'll, you know, start something from the same era anyway. (laughs) Oh, what's interesting is that something that Buffy and Charmed share in common is Mm -hmm. that because Prue is on seasons one through three of Charmed and Buffy's high school years are seasons one, two, and three. And then it sort of switches into like its adult years. And so they do share that that similarity and sort of having these first three foundational years of the series and then transitioning to like their adult lives. Um, right. Which I think is an interesting parallel. That is really interesting. And I can appreciate how that would really change the perspective of fans. Uh, and I actually, one of my questions for you was, do you prefer Buffy in high school or Buffy in college? Oh, definitely, definitely Buffy in high school without a doubt. Yeah. yeah. I think that I just really, I mean, I was in middle school when I found the show. So I think there was just that natural inclination that I think a lot of young people have about sort of seeing media with older people in it and feeling like this more reflects who I am and who I'm meant to be friends with. And like, I function way more like a teenager than I do, you know, the current age I am. So I related to that, but I also sort of liked the contained aspect of the show because they had this high school set because Mm -hmm. everyone had to be in the same place from nine to five. I just sort of liked the parameters that, that, and the container that the the show built for itself. I think it, there's many aspects of the show I like in the later years, but I sort of like the aspect of like in these hallowed halls is where it all goes down. And I like the dichotomy of like, Buffy being out fighting demons at night, but then having to go home and study for a calculus test the next day. I sort of, I like that, that um, aspect of the show that I think it, it sort of uh, alleviates itself of later on. Um, I just, yeah, I always really took to that sort of aspect of the metaphor. I definitely struggle with a lot of shows and I'll even throw Charmed in this of where time doesn't really seem to be a big thing. And I can totally appreciate that of she has to be mindful of tomorrow will be up uh there's a test and i still have to get all my homework done but i also have to be the slayer right now you interviewed so many cast members and super fans alike for this book uh did your process ever feel like a reunion made just for you that's so funny um no in that well knowing that i don't think this cast uh participates in many reunions very often. No, Um, not at all. But it did, but so in that sense, like, yes, it was exciting because I felt like I was assembling them, but it wasn't all together. They very much felt in silo. And mind you, like the Amber Benson interview took place in like November of 2020. And then I think the Anthony Stewart had interview was like, May of 2021. So like they were happening over such a long period of time and like life was my own life was getting lived in the interim. So unlike a traditional reunion where it's like this Mm -hmm. sort of like major event, this was just so prolonged that, um, and also I just had so many different things to talk to certain people about depending on, you know, my familiarity with them and Mm -hmm. what they'd gone on to do. I mean, some of them really had not done much since Buffy. Others of them have gone on to do so many things and Buffy is like a blip in their radar. So it was interesting um, the ways in which this sort of differed from a standard, you know, all cast combined reunion. But I would have loved, I think that there would have been an equally interesting book, just very different had I been able to do one, you know, you know, eight hour interview with the full cast sitting down. I would have appreciated the back and forth. 
the idea of spanning so much of your life while writing this book, how long did the the whole process take? It took about, uh, well, counting like rewrites and all of that, I would say it took around a little over a year, all things considered, okay. which sounds like a long time, but... Um, in the world of books, that's pretty fast. <laughs> it, yeah, very fast in the world of books. And also there was a, a good period of that where I was not actually doing anything. So I would say the actual writing process was about seven months and it was expedited because of trying to time it around this 25th anniversary of the show's release. So like we had a date that we were like working off of. And funny enough, I did not pitch the book originally with the mindfulness around the anniversary. That just happened oh. to be sort of a peg that we discovered midway through the proposal process. Mm -hmm. So uh, I envisioned this as me like, yeah, I'm gonna write this oral history and uh, you know, it will be done when it's done. Little did I know we were working against the clock, but I'm a writer in my day to day life. So I think that the, pro so having, although it was less time than is often afforded to writers, it was plenty of time by the standards I'm used to. And now you're the historian, so correct me if I'm wrong, but Sarah Michelle Geller doesn't usually talk about Buffy, correct? Or here and there? I would say she definitely talks about Buffy, um, but it will always be when she's doing some other press opportunity and someone will sneak in a Buffy question <laughs> and it will typically be, what are your thoughts on the possibility of a revival? Mm -hmm. Or they will do the sort of like, you know, now that you've had all of the this time away from the show, when you look back on it, Buffy and Angel or Buffy and Spike. So I would say when she's asked about it, it won't be like in in you know in a form format in which she's intending to talk about Buffy, and it will be sort of like boiled down into like sort of like larger themed questions. Because like even I, when I interviewed her in 2019 for something completely unrelated was like, well, I have Sarah Michelle Gellar in front of me. I should ask about Buffy. <laughs> I mean, you have to take advantage of it when it's there, but this time interviewing her for this book, what, what was that like? It was very surreal. And it was, it was a, it was a lengthy process. I knew that I, I mean, in all honesty, I didn't think that I would have a book without her um, and, and, and everything was signed, sealed, delivered before she ever agreed to this. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. So <laughs> there was a lot sort of riding on that. I remember getting the email from her in December of 2020. Um, I remember it because I was home with my, with my family. And I remember like seeing this email from her that said like, yes, of course. Um, which is funny. Cause that's sort of her in a nutshell where it's like, I am like, you know, I, I, like, you know, worked so meticulously to like draft this email to her, asking her to do this and recognizing the fact that she doesn't do this for many people, blah, blah, blah. And then she responds back like 20 minutes later being like, yeah, sure. Just let me know when, um, which is her in, in the best way possible. But yeah, I think that I had the advantage of having a very long tail relationship with her that you know, obviously began as fan. And then we have a lot of mutual friends that brought us together in 2017. And then professional opportunities arose through the years. And so we've always had this sort of, um, not always, but we for, for some time now have had this strange proximity to one another. And I think I'm lucky in that I, in addition to being granted access to her, mm. I had her trust. And that sure. was sort of the really important ingredient because as I think a lot of people can imagine, spending 25 years of your life talking about a job that you did 
many, many years ago. I think it can be gnawing. I think it can be annoying. I think like no matter how much gratitude you have for something, it's just gonna, there's a redundancy that's going to grow over time. So I think when I say that she's like not keen to talk about Buffy, it's not out of like resentment so much as it is fatigue. Absolutely. I can't imagine if someone was asking me at the end of every interview I did for the majority of my professional career, Buffy or or Angel or Spike, I'd probably, I'd have some resentment too, without a doubt. And just just of that question, not of the show, not of the work I did, because I mean, she is an icon. Um, First, did this conversation with her feel different? just compared to the ones you've had in the past, having that trust, having that friendship, but coming from a different angle. And also did it feel different from your conversations with other cast members? Definitely felt different than conversations with other cast members because mm-hmm. she's one of the few people that was there from the very beginning. And, and I'm not talking about the pilot episode. I'm talking about the unaired pilot episode, sure. which is available on YouTube. I mean, so she started Buffy actually in 1996, not in 1997, okay. saw it through to the very end interacted with pretty much every guest star or, you know, recurring character had to deal with the fight scenes and singing in the musical and just, you know, sort of carried so much of the brunt of the show. I mean, she was the number one on the call sheet for seven years of this show. And was it different than past interviews? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we don't talk about Buffy. I mean, I think she just doesn't come up. And then for me, I'm conscious about not talking to her about Buffy. So yeah, it was definitely interesting, but I think the timing was so ripe because this was um, somewhat early into the pandemic and she was watching Buffy with her kids for the first time. So I actually think her memories were more top of mind than they would be typically because one thing about Sarah and like she says this all the time, and again, this isn't unique to Sarah, it's hard to recall events that happened 20 plus years ago for anyone. Mm-hmm. So, and she is often asked to like recall them with, you know, uh, a level of, of detail that just, you know, is inhuman. So I was lucky enough that in a, beyond just the memory she had, there was something else that was occurring in her life, this rewatch that was able to trigger things that might've been buried or just forgotten. So that made it really lucky. But I, yeah, I had to really approach it from the perspective of like, knowing that she's been asked every question, but there are sometimes I have to ask the question. I know she's been asked for due diligence and then other times trying to be really mindful of like, is there something she hasn't been asked about? Or can I take advantage of the fact of like the things that Sarah knows that I glob onto? So it's like Sarah knows I love Buffy fashion. So I think I can get a more, um, you know, fruitful conversation with her than perhaps someone else might because she knows that that's like, particularly exciting for me i mean and who doesn't love buffy fashion i mean i I loved the fashion of charmed but buffy fashion is accessible fashion it is what you wish you could have worn at that age but still like you probably could have if you had just like you know a hundred dollars more in the bank kind of thing versus like oh yeah no they're wearing designers this isn't isn't realistic or access to like a really good thrift store. Cause I mean like a lot of that stuff, I think it could be thrifted, but like, you gotta give me an, yeah. A thrift store, like in like downtown LA. <laughs> yes. Oh yeah. Like an out of the closet on a really good day. Exactly. Back to Sarah and my probably last question about her. How do you feel about her kind of being pigeonholed? Isn't fair because her being Buffy was kind of like the birth of an icon aside from, I know what you did last summer. Like countless roles that I could 
could scream about for days, but how do you feel about her being Buffy to so many people kind of always? I love it. I mean, as long as she doesn't love it, I love it. I think that it's, you know, it's a gift and a burden to mm-hmm. have a role this um, consequential to this many people. And, and I was going to yes. say recognizable, but it's not just recognizable, right? It's like a mm-hmm. level up from that. Daphne Blake is recognizable, but it's absolutely. not so consequential in the way Buffy is. But yeah, I, I absolutely love it. Do I, I'm, I'm, well, I will say I'm glad she has roles like Daphne or Catherine mm-hmm. from Cruel Intentions, uh, just two examples that like, can sort of make it so that she's not quite, you know, like the can per, perceived as like this one hit wonder. Right. Do I hope for an exciting next chapter in the canon of Sarah Michelle Gellar's film and television work? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> sure. But I absolutely think that that will come. And I am excited for the long game of like, like, you know, sitting down with Sarah Michelle Gellar in 40 years when there are, you know, 10 plus roles that she's regarded for and looking where Buffy stacks up in the scheme of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think that it also, it was a very different time in the sense of, you know, she left the show in 2003. There weren't the opportunities that there are for so many uh, women today in Hollywood, but particularly young women to create their own work and, you know, female showrunners with a consciousness around casting other mm. women. I mean, like, it's just, it's a different industry uh, in so many ways. So I am also curious too how different Buffy would have been received and then also what Sarah Michelle Gellar's post-Buffy career would have looked like had it not been 2003 and been 2013 or 2023, et cetera. Absolutely. I I think the closest I could even think of today is like Zendaya. And she still had that break between Disney Channel and today. And she's seeing, I would say, almost more work now than any recognition for like, what was it? Shake it up. So there's definitely an energy there that it, yeah, if it were to happen right now, what would be the next steps? And I, I love, I love thinking on that. Now, Buffy has a, a lot that surrounds it. It's a beautiful show when you look at feminism, sexuality, and I think so many people related to it because it actually tackled and portrayed these issues in ways that they could understand, um, especially like if you think of the episode that was unaired at the time, uh, just in line with Columbine, um, they really have, like I said, that tough topics for teens genre down pat. Uh, what highs and lows do you see with the show kind of in that vein well the highlight would definitely for me be buffy's coming out to her mom in the Mm -hmm. season two finale um coming out to her as a slayer i feel like there's just so much subtext i mean obviously as a queer person i think many queer people can relate to a coming out if not a coming out to their their parent Mm -hmm. um so that one stands out for me too but i just i really liked the idea of Buffy being sort of like this outcast, but coming from a world in which she was the popular girl. So in the canon of of Buffy, the the film version, which preceded the series by five years, that's sort of uh, somewhat canon to Buffy the series. But basically she was in high school in Los Angeles and was one of the really popular girls when she found out she was the Slayer and and ostensibly had to like give up that popularity in order to fulfill her destiny as the Slayer. And I like this perspective that the Buffy of the series brings, which is sort of like, I've been there, done that. I've been the popular girl and it wasn't all that it's thought to be by so many people. And Mm -hmm. I actually prefer having these really strong friendships. And, you know, she makes the decision to forego popularity in the pilot episode of the series. Mm -hmm. 
And so I think that that's something I've always just really liked about the show is it sort of took on this perspective of the cool kids really aren't that cool when it comes down to it. And the cool kids really are this group of outcasts getting to have all these adventures, but not needing credit for it. It's like they would go save the world at night, then come the next morning and still be antagonized by the bullies at school. But it was the perspective of they're a little bit okay with that because they recognize that those bullies will never understand. And I feel like that, like that disempowering cool people in such a subversive way is something I will always connect with. And then to your question of things that don't, is this in other words, like things that don't hold up so well? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, episodically, there's nothing that really stands out in the same way of like, sometimes I'll be watching a Sex in the City episode and I'll be like, mm-hmm. oh my God, like, wow, they really chose this plot. So the only thing that comes to mind for me is in season six, the sexual assault storyline with Buffy. Um, but I will say more than anything, it just doesn't like make sense. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not like, I mean, I'm, I, I was going to say I'm not outraged by it. I mean, I am. I am outraged by it. But I also feel like I just, it, I, and I've had this conversation with so many people where it's like, suddenly she is not Buffy. Like she is physically unable to pry this adversary off of her who she's fought time and time again and whose ass she's kicked time and time again. Right. So just um, from like a story perspective, I've never really understood that decision. And right. I don't think it holds up well. And I don't think the show dealt with it well. But um, outside of that, I don't see there being many, like even I, I did a rewatch of the series before writing the book. And I think it holds up remarkably well in that sense, especially when stacked against other shows from that time um, that can feel very dated. I, I feel like, Buffy, like I, I think about there's this gay kiss on Dawson's Creek um, between mm-hmm. Jack and his then boyfriend, which was like heralded for like, oh my God, blah, blah, blah. And you watch it now and I'm like, they barely kiss. And with Buffy, it's like um, the kisses between Willow and Tara, especially in season five and season six, like, and they have, they're having sex in season six. And like the show really, um, I still find it to be rather boundary pushing in a really exciting way. So um, I would say, yeah, more holds up uh, in a, in a, in a positive way than in a negative way. That, that is exciting to hear. And honestly, I got chills when you said, uh, or when you described kind of Buffy dismissing popularity for being an outcast, but saving the world. Because in my brain, I had always uh, thought of it as like, something's got to give, you know, I, I can't be the cheerleader and save the world and go to school. But the the actual thought of like, no, I've, I've made an informed decision of this is actually like filling my tank compared to just being fake and I I really appreciate that if I wasn't ready to watch it all all the way through already I definitely am now now on the flip side the show has not only called out for being very white and starting the barrier gaze trope there's also to quote you to you the Joss Whedon of it all what is it like to have something you love so much and be okay with criticizing it you know, it, it it comes so second nature to me. It's interesting mm-hmm. because I've been in a lot of interviews talking about this and right. um, I'll often be approached of this idea of like, um, you know, like what made you, what gave you the permission or, or, you know, where did you have that inclination? And it's kind of like, I, that's all I've ever really known. And not just with Buffy. I mean, like, I think about like one of my other great loves in my, in my youth, which was Christina Aguilera. And like, I remember time and time again, especially like in my high school and college years of like her disappointing me with something she would do and me just being like, well, that's part of the package. To me, it's, I think of it the same way I do like 
your crazy aunt where it's just like she says some crazy shit, but you love her. So with and that's and that's not with me or Buffy with me or Christina. That's sort of how I approach everything. But it's like I I, you know, I'm a, a buyer beware. And I sort of recognize this idea that like, if I love something and the something that I love has a beating heart in some way, um, there's the opportunity that it's going to let me down or let others down. And I recognize that. And it's not that it doesn't taint my love, but I would say I find it to be more incumbent on me, the audience than the show to just be mindful of the fact of like, to not let to not give these things our full heart mm-hmm. in the sense that like or else you know it will get broken so um I, I yeah it's like i love my unproblematic faves like i think about you know hbo's the comeback as an example of that those are amazing but a lot of you know i i think about what happened with with chris noth and sex in the city and it's just like there are things there are i was going to say inevitabilities and that's an unfortunate word to use but there are no matter the show, even if it's doesn't even, you know, even if, and just like that aside, it's like, you can find out things about actors or, or creators of shows years later that taint your viewpoint. And I think you, like I said, have to go into these things with a buyer beware mentality, which I think I always have instinctually. Absolutely. It's a great way to protect yourself and also to still be able to enjoy content, but find ways to watch where your support goes and watch where your energy goes. Absolutely. So as we've discussed, you were writing amidst the pandemic and allegations coming to light about Whedon. Um, How did your process of writing and uh, interviewing change, uh, both with taking the opportunity to call out like lack of POC and kind of the whiteness um, and give a voice to those impacted by the actions or the alleged actions? Well, the interesting thing is that the... The allegations from Charisma Carpenter, Amber Benson, and Michelle Trachtenberg, those did not come out until March 2021. But like a lot was known prior to that, um, whether it be from uh, an open letter that Joss Whedon's ex-wife Kai Cole had written in 2017 or things that Charisma Carpenter had said in the past. She did my podcast in 2020 and said some things that led me to believe there was a there there. So it's not as though I was writing this book and then suddenly got sidelined by information. It was more that like midway through writing this book, um, things that I had thought to be true were sort of, uh, uh, you know, underlined and, and bolded and made more, you know, became more clear what, what was, you know, what was, uh, mm. was, was it transparent became translucent or vice versa, whatever. Anyway. So, um, so it didn't change my process. Like I, I think, as I said, Amber Benson was one of my very first interviews and the interview in the book, which is I did not re-interview Amber. That was all conveyed to me in like everything that she came oh, wow. forward with in March of 2021. That was known to me when I did the interview because this is you know part of these people's stories. Right. Um, I definitely had to do some re-interviews post-March 2021. Mm -hmm. I think that people felt more of a freedom to speak out knowing that others in the the Buffy circle had done so. Um, But like, for instance, talking about like the overwhelming whiteness of the show, that was always in my outline. That's, yeah, I, I was always very aware of that. And I would say, that's the kind of question that made me most excited um, about doing this book, which is that like, you know, again, these are a lot of these topics and things that someone can ask of a Buffy cast member. They've been asked before. I'm not sure how many times Buffy actors or writers have been 
confronted and that's what it is in a sense. I mean, I sure. try not to be like my, my attitude about it was not to be like adversarial, but, but I'm not sure how often they've been confronted with that and had to think about it. And that to me is very much that 2022 lens on looking at a show like this. So that was like exciting to me. And it was most exciting when I had an actor or writer who was like willing to engage with the topic, such as an Amber Benson, someone mm -hmm. who clearly given thought to the conversation prior to me asking, you got a few people where like the question was a non-starter and it was like, you know, you didn't really get a there there. But in the case of Amber Benson or Danny Strong or Claire Kramer or Sarah Michelle Geller, it's like, this is something that they'd thought about before. And this is more an opportunity to speak to it. So I don't think my process like changed so much as much as I had more. Um, I guess I would say I had a, a few follow-up questions uh, to ask that might not have been in my original, you know, draft of questions. So kind of feeling into that might be a hard question, but Buffy is a show with a strong discourse around it. And there's been college courses. I mean, there's a lot of people discussing Buffy. So why this book and why now? What, what motivated you? What kind of, what kind of fueled this? Well, I knew that everything out there was tended to be very academic and very uh, looked at the show with, you know, with a level of analysis. And I knew mm -hmm. that my approach to it was going to be a little bit more from the heart. Um, and, and, and I knew that I was going to wrap up, you know, my own experience of the show. I knew that I was going to be in conversation with fans of the show in addition to critics, which is to say when I, when I, when I differentiate the two, it's to say that like a fan can, can see things a little bit more, um, blindly is perhaps not the word, but it's like, uh, you rose colored sort of glasses. Exactly. Um, which I can with certain aspects of the show. I mean, I mentioned the idea that I always criticize the show, but also when it comes to like Sarah Michelle Geller, it's like, I do not claim to be objective when it comes to talking about Sarah Michelle Geller. But so I knew that I could approach it with a level of fandom. I knew that my verbose writing style or just my, you know, excitement about the show was something that mm -hmm. I could bring to it. I knew that I had access to more of the cast. I mean, I have relationships with people beyond just Sarah, that made it feel like I could really get to people that don't often talk about the show. For right. instance, I think with like Mark Lucas and Seth Green are two examples that I'm really, really proud of. Seth Green never talks about Buffy and only right. did this book because of Sarah Michelle Gellar. But it's like Seth Green is someone who on his resume, Buffy might be 10th, maybe 15th, maybe 20th. Yeah. So that was like really exciting. Mark Lucas lives on a farm in Pennsylvania, um, is sort of, you know, not, Buffy is not something he thinks about. He talks about this in the book. He actively did not participate in reunions for a long time. So that was, you know, really exciting for me. And then why now I had been approached by an agent about writing a book and it was sort of like, what do you want to write about? And the only thing I could think of was, you know, write what you know, and I, and I know Buffy. And so for me, it was, it was really like a combination of, of laziness and convenience <laughs> and opportune timing. Uh, hey, I love that. I think those are some of the best reasons to do anything. It's arrived at your door and write what you know. Right. And yeah, I'm answering. Okay. So some quick Buffy Stan questions. Uh, when did you start watching Buffy? I started watching in October of 1997, um, season two, episode six, Halloween. Favorite and least favorite episode or season? I don't want to make it too difficult. Um, my favorite episode is the season four episode, Who Are You? In which Buffy and Faith trade bodies. It's just 
a there are several instances in which you get to see uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar play characters outside of Buffy. This being one instance, another occurs in seasons five and six when she plays the Buffy bot. I just really like seeing Sarah Michelle Gellar sort of like, you know, her craft at play. Yeah. And so you become so accustomed to seeing her play this part. I just thought it was so fun to watch her play Faith. Also, Faith is my favorite character on the show. Okay. Least favorite episode in the book. I say that it's the season two episode Killed by Death. Um, but I really, I have a lot of least favorite episodes. Um, <laughs> uh, but I would say like, there's a big chunk of like the middle of season six that I think is just borderline unwatchable. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to answer your question, so, and then least favorite season um, would be season season seven probably just because although i think season six is worse i think season six has higher highs and i think season seven is a big missed opportunity in a lot of ways um with regards to like the handling of the rebuild of sunnydale high school and i think they just dropped off on a few characters in season seven since you gave us your least favorite season do you have a favorite season Yes, my favorite season is season three by a long shot. I don't think there's a single bad episode in season three. I think it's 22 great episodes of Buffy. It features my favorite big bad, which is Faith. I love Harry Groner as the mayor. Um, I'm a big fan of his work on Broadway. And I just think everyone looks their best in season three. And I feel like the show, it's like that. I I tend to love a season three in general. But Mm -hmm. what I love about a season three and with Buffy is it's like, it's in its prime, like it knows it's a hit, but yep. it's still young, so no one's like over it. It's kind of like why I anticipate season three of Euphoria will be really exciting because it's like, it's already such a thing, but there's not a ton of material to work off of. Like when you begin Buffy season three, there's only 34, 34 episodes of the show so far. And yet it's like very much, it knows what it's doing. It knows the world, the actors know the roles. So love season three, but like I said, tend to love a season three. I, I totally can get down with that. Season three is my favorite season of Charmed. Same reason it's, there's no bad episodes and right. There's no repeating happening yet. We're not seeing the same things played out again. Exactly. You already told me uh, Buffy in high school instead of Buffy in college. Uh, thoughts on the show Angel? Um, not a huge fan, which I know is not a popular opinion to have in the Buffyverse. I think that <laughs> my attachment to Buffy will always be vis-a-vis Sarah Michelle Gellar. Okay. So when you package a show without her, it's going to lose points uh, at the outset. Additionally, I just don't, I'm not really fascinated by the character of Angel. Um, right. You know, I've watched it before. I think it's a good show. It's mm-hmm. not for me, but I think part of the important thing to recognize um, in, you know, the arts in general is that like not all art is for you, but it's still worthwhile and meaningful. So it's not that I think Angel is bad by any measure. It's just not the show for me that I think Buffy is. Thoughts on some of our award-winning episodes, or I guess truthfully, just thoughts on the silent episode and Joyce's death. Those are the two that um, I've seen that stand out to me for their different styles of direction, their different styles of just like overall creation. Yeah, I mean, perfect episodes of television. I think Hush is like, it's such a masterpiece for so many reasons. But one reason why I really love it is that you can watch it without context and still really enjoy it. It's a great introductory episode of Buffy. And though it is so different from the format as it exists, it's not different in the sense that it doesn't, it it fits into the season of Buffy. It fits into an episode of Buffy. I think one of the great things about Joss Whedon to his credit is like 
even when he endeavored to try new things, whether it be the silent episode or I'm thinking about thinking about the musical in season six, mm-hmm. they all seem to like he, t- you know, they, he creates this restraint or this container. And all of a sudden you're just kind of like, oh, I never thought about that. But OK, yeah, let's do it. Like it, it doesn't feel like we're jumping off of a bridge. So right. or if it does, it feels like we I am very aware of the harness. Like I, there's just something about it where like the creative choices are so bold but never feel dangerous um Mm -hmm. so i i love them both i think i have particular regard for um well actually no i was gonna say one of the other but no i really love them both i love the humor in both of them so two details that i point out um i love in the silent episode when giles draws the stick figure of buffy and buffy feels a certain way about the size of her stick figure which i just think is such a buffy response Mm -hmm. and it's like it's such a great beat of comedy and just so quintessentially buffy because i don't even think she means it i think she's just that's her response to feeling like that's not how she's being drawn in a way that's not how she sees herself which i just love um and then in the uh in the uh, Joyce's death episode. I mean, there are so many moments that I love, but I particularly love all of the stuff with the sweater with Willow, where she wants to wear this particular sweater to the funeral because Joyce probably innocuously told her one time that she liked it and she cannot find the sweater. And it turns out the sweater was there all along and Anya finds it at the very end, but it's of the, of the act, but it's too late because they've already left. I just love that detail of, amidst someone dying you get this you get kind of tunnel vision and you're like i need to do this one thing and then you create this idea of like why it's so important to you and i love the detail of it being there all along and her like not being able to find it because she wasn't in the right mental state i find that to be really um very relatable for a lot of people there are a lot of beats in that episode i think that death is uh you know i think there's a couple shows that deal with death really well i think of like six feet under is a good example but like death is something despite the fact that it's depicted a lot it's not often like you don't always like get the feeling of death and that episode really encapsulates the the feeling and especially those 24 hours immediately after someone dies i just think that like you can't watch that episode without some proximity to that feeling Absolutely. It, aside from like the choice to not have music throughout and it really does feel like what grief feels like, what loss feels like. And it, I think it's a, a helpful kind of study of what we go through, like you said, in that kind of 24, 48 hour period around losing someone. So let's take a big step back from Buffy and quickly go to you as a writer. What drew you into your space of creating? I think that it's just always what has made me, ha- it's made me happy. I, I I will be honest. I try not to spend a lot of time thinking about why I do or how I do. It's I, I found culture when I was younger. I like things like Buffy, things like Christina Aguilera. And then I went to school for theater because at first I was like, oh, I like this. I should, I should make it. And then I kind of realized that I have less of a proclivity for making it so much as I do responding to it talking to the people that make it yes celebrating it yeah um and so it just kind of felt natural it was never I never pursued journalism or was like oh I want to be a writer it sort of just happened and it can and then here I am now you know I'm 33 years old and it's still happening but sometimes people will be like oh like what what's your plan like did you blah blah it's like there was never a plan there still is not a plan um you know, something could come into my life tomorrow and be like, all of a sudden I could be like, hmm, that sounds appealing. But so, yeah, it's just that I, I, I am a culture vulture. I always have been. And but this was a way when, with which to, you know, 
be a part of it without actually creating it myself. Maybe one day I'll create something, who knows? But that's also beautiful because your life has become about embracing what you enjoy and embracing what you love. It's it's a life of happiness and like self-care as opposed to, I think this will get me somewhere. No, that's, that's a great way to live. I'd rather not think about the why and just actually put in the action. Absolutely. And obviously, I mean, it's a great, it's an honor and it's an exciting thing. And like, I I don't take for granted the fact that like, uh, there's been a lot of opportunities that have been presented to me that I think I've seized on, but you know, those opportunities have to present themselves first. But yes, like to your point, it's like, I love what I do. I always say this, and this is not just what I do. It's like, if, if, if a thing stops being fun, I'll stop doing it. And right now this is fun. And I have a joy about it that I hopefully comes across in the work itself. And if that, if that joy ceases, then I will go elsewhere. A healthy approach to life that I think so many of us need to work on adopting. So this is now where I will just kind of let us unwind. I've got some fun questions for you. Uh, When you are writing, when you are working on any of your other projects, what is your environment like? Are you a silence? Are you a music? Do you have snacks handy? What are they? Um. All of the above. I am, like I said, I write for my day job. So I'm always writing and I'm always sort of, I'm, I will always be working on different things at certain times. So like, I'll give you a, for instance, like I did my paper column. I write a biweekly column for paper. And so like what I did last night is I was hanging out with some friends and we were all sort of like on our laptops and we're like watching TV. And so like, I took out my laptop and I just skeletoned yeah. the piece for today of being like, okay, I know tomorrow I want to talk about Coachella. I know I want to talk about the euphoria red carpet event that happened recently. And then I was like, oh, I definitely want to make sure I mention this uh, with Coachella. I want to talk about XYZ's, this person's outfit, blah, blah, blah. And so I, I don't even know if you'd call it like, was I technically writing perhaps, but I wasn't like, they weren't full sentences. So it's sort of like, or I'm, you know, sometimes I'll be in the subway and I'll open the notes app and I'll like jot something down or I'll see a tweet that I like and I'll be like, oh, I definitely want to embed this tweet or like this tweet can be like a jumping off point. So there's not really like a standard like place or way I write. Sometimes I'm eating, sometimes I'm drinking, sometimes I'm listening to music, you name yeah. it. Um, for me, it's very much when when the urge compels. Who are you rooting for in All Star 7? Who am I rooting for in All Star 7? I am rooting for Raja. I think Raja, um, in addition to Raja's myriad talents, I think Raja deserves that crown in a way that none of her competitors do, perhaps outside of the Vivian, in that Raja did not get her financial due with her win in comparison to uh, the other queens on the show. And so if for no other reason, I mean, I am a Raja super fan, but it's like Raja deserves. What is your go-to delivery order? I go to delivery order. Well, it's changed. It was okay. um, a carne asada burrito from this place called Calexico in New York City that I love. But now it would be the kale salad from, um, su- not sweet green. Oh my God, I hate sweet green. It would be the kale salad from Westville. And I do extra walnuts without the blue cheese. Cause I'm not a big fan of cheese on a salad. I love cheese, just not on a salad. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, lately I've just like toasted um nuts of any kind on a salad is like my happiest place so definitely that westville kale salad and like i i i the amount of times i order it in a week um (laughs) it's not it's not good it's not good what are you binge watching right now what am I, okay, so right now I've been watching The Vow on HBO, which is okay. that, the documentary about Nexium. Because I love to like, I discover yes. things late. I'm always like, I like to watch something after it's become fodder. I just began season two of The Flight Attendant, mm-hmm. and I wasn't feeling it at first. And then 
I read this review being like, oh my God, season two is amazing. So I went back and rewatched it and was like, oh my God, it is amazing, which is, which is such a, I, I, I don't know. I'm always, I love having that sort of about face about something mm-hmm. like being open to the idea of like that you, I, Evan was wrong about this. And like, I should invest in revisiting it. And, and, you know, sometimes your opinion won't change, but it did. So season two of the flight attendant, um, yeah, those are, that's what I'm really into at the moment. Okay, last few things. What would you like readers to take away from Into Every Generation of Slayer is Born? I would just like more sort of like um, more time spent considering a perspective that's not the one that you have about something. So it's like I get asked a lot about this book, um, you know, with the Joss Whedon allegations. How do you feel about watching Buffy now? Does it taint your experience of the show? Mm-hmm. And what I'm more interested in is like... Um, does it taint yours? Like you tell me, like you, you, you know, you're having to, we're all contending with this and not just with Buffy, with so many aspects and not just with television, with so many industries in which, you know, bad people, often bad men reveal themselves or or are revealed. And Mm -hmm. I think it's just an ongoing conversation that should be had. I'm less interested in like the, should this person or should this entity be canceled and sort of like, okay, well, how do we move past that? And like, so, so what, what now? Um, I always come back to, um, Madonna's justify my love when she says, so now what? I'm always asking that question about things. So now what? Like you've been presented with this information. So now what? And I, one thing I tried to explore with this book is like lots of different people's opinions. There are some people that will never watch Buffy again. Some people that don't give a damn about the Joss stuff. I don't have a strong opinion about it so much as I'd love for people to consider their opinion and have it be ongoing. That said, if you never want to watch it again because of this, you are absolutely entitled to that. But for me, it's just sort of like, I love intellectual rigor. And I think that Buffy's a great place to direct that. Where can the listeners find you online? You can find me on Instagram at Evan Ross Katz. You can find my podcast, Shout Up Evan, which comes out every other Tuesday. Um, I'm like a little bit back on Twitter, a li- like a little bit touch and go here and there. Um, but I would say mainly Instagram. And then lastly, who do you think Buffy would choose? Angel or Spike? I'll ask you the worst question right at the end. That's okay. No, I think Buffy (laughs) would choose neither of them. I think Buffy uh, is an independent woman at the end of the day. She came into this world alone and I think she's happy on her own. I don't think she needs the support or any man to make her feel anything. I think that she is enough and I think she recognizes her enoughness. Well, Evan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today and sharing all about your book. Thank you. This has been fun. Listeners, Into Every Generation of Slayer is Born is out now from Hachette Books. Run to it and start reading. And once again, thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you all for listening. Happy reading. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on Overdrive.com and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcast.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Emma Dwyer, Jill Grunewald, and Joe Skelly, and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Hey Hey there. there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. 
We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.